Hi, I'm your host, Yora, and this is Broccoli Book Club, a socially progressive podcast aimed at analysing timely and thought-provoking reads. And this episode is the author interview, which follows the Broccoli Book Club episode on The Good Immigrant. I'm so excited to be joined by its editor, the award-winning and best-selling author, Nikesh Shukla. In 2019, Time magazine named him one of the 12 leaders shaping the next generation of artists. When The Good Immigrant was first published in 2016, after a crowdfunding campaign, the reaction to it was huge. Newspapers praised the book, with The Guardian calling it an unflinching dialogue about race and racism in the UK. Due to the book's success, there have now been two more Good Immigrant anthologies compiled in the United States and the Netherlands. The Good Immigrant attempts to counter the inaccurate and demonising narratives we hear on a daily basis, by giving a voice to those whose stories are often not heard. Still getting used to our new normal, we recorded this interview via Zoom, me in my bedroom and Nikesh in his office. I've always really admired Nikesh's work, so I had to ask where his passion for books began. Yeah, I was always a big reader. My mum, uh, the one thing that she made sure me and my sister did every two weeks she would take us to the library mostly so she could stock up on new Mills and Boone books because she loved her Mills and Boone but she gave us free run of the library and so I would tear through absolutely everything I could find and when I'd exhausted all the kids books that I thought were interesting I was moving on to the adult books so you know I really remember reading Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky when I was like 11 and then being like I have no idea what this is about (laughs) and so yeah I've always read I've always it's always been like a great source of comfort for me it's always always been a very important part of my day and then you know when I was a teenager I exclusively read comics I kind of then rediscovered my love of reading in my first year of uni basically because of some mental health reasons I decided not to stay in halls at my uni I stayed at home with my parents and so my commute would be basically from Harrow to Mile End every single day in London and so I'd have like an hour each way that's when I started reading again and haven't really looked back since it's probably the most important thing that I do and I learned recently listening to an interview with Zadie Smith who's like my favorite author she has whole days allocated to reading during her week and I was like oh my god that is the dream because I always have a fiction book on the go but I also have like multiple essays that I'm reading or multiple articles and like non-fiction stuff around things that I'm interested in and there just isn't enough time to read all of the books no no, you're right. I mean, I've just uh, finished reading Zadie Smith's latest essays around lockdown. It's called Intimations. What did you think? I really, really liked it. There was one essay in particular called Something to Do. Yeah. And it was all about the act of writing or creating art. I just really, really related to it. And I think it's in this essay that she talks about having like reading days and writing days. And now that lockdown is like, kind of happening, like her sort of work style is being exposed to other people it's a great essay i remember in the early days of lockdown i would feel incredibly guilty if family ran in on me reading or watching something when i'm technically at work because when they're not here and when i'm at my office i can read and watch stuff and you know do what i want and go i need to think about this i'm going to go for a little walk but suddenly in lockdown when like childcare is precious and you're kind of 
juggling things it kind of becomes a harder thing to justify that you're not just chained to your desk writing you're actually you know reading an essay that you might might inform the thing that you're writing you know might not exactly because sometimes it feels very like self-indulgent and a massive luxury to just be sitting around and reading and writing but that is the process you know and everyone has a different process but um yeah I'm not I'm not gonna lie it's sick it's so sick that I get to do that as a job (laughs) like I love that that's amazing and when you were younger did you ever think that that would be what you end up doing no I thought I'd end up being a lawyer or like something boring uh like my dad really wanted a lawyer in the family and my you know my mum just wanted someone in our family to go to university. So I was like the first in our family to go to university. But like they both wanted me to do something proper. And it's interesting, like, I guess since The Good Immigrant came out and, you know, loads of things have happened where like I'm being talked about in mainstream press stuff, which is always a bit weird. And I've got two honorary doctorates in the last year. It's only then like my, my dad started to kind of go, oh, this is actually a proper career. And I'm like, yes, that I have been telling you for years. And how did that journey happen for you? So, you know, you you thought you might end up being, as you said, a boring lawyer or something else. But when was the moment that you thought, ah, maybe I should do this for a living and it's actually kind of happening for me? So I did a law degree. I finished my law degree. I hated every single second of it. But, you know, I do like to stick to things. And I spent the majority of my 20s thinking that I was going to be a famous rapper Uh, But I just wasn't very good. And like the reality was that I just didn't have the care and attention that a musician needs to make themselves good at their musical art forms. But I was really obsessed with story. So like the lyrics were always very storytelling focused. And I put out an album, self-funded, putting out an album and it bombed really badly. And it was after that that I was like, well, I've been writing all these short stories a thing that had happened was while I was working on that album, I'd had a short story accepted into an anthology that was being edited by Rajiv Balasubramaniam and Nia Yikwe Parks, who were both like big heroes of mine. And also it was a project that Courtier Newland was involved in. And they picked me to be in the second volume of this anthology. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then when my author copy came through the post and I saw the barcode on the back, I was like, oh my God, this is legit. It has a barcode. My God. You know, seeing my name amongst like the names of writers that I really respected, like Leonie Ross and Ramesh Gunasekara and Kamala Shamsi. And I was like, oh my God. Like with this one short story, I've already like surpassed everything I achieved as a shit rapper. So I decided to kind of not focus on music for a little bit and just try writing more stuff and see what happens. And I ended up with a novel and then that novel came out. So, you know, how do you think doing something you hated for three years affected you as a writer? Maybe that's your mentality or your writing routine or the way you think about things. I guess two things. So studying something that you don't like, but you still have to understand it in order to pass (laughs) and not fail and not like bring on the wrath of your parents taught me a lot about like researching complex ideas and then reforming them until there's something that I understand so there was that the other thing was in my second year and third year I got to specialize I got to choose modules that I was interested in and so I did international human rights law and 
that was around the time that I was discovering a band called Asian Dub Foundation and they were my like entry point into like learning more about politics and the way the world worked and so the stuff that I was studying at school and that like the additional research I was doing around that Asian Dub Foundation album Ruffy's Revenge like they both kind of formed my outlook and I think that's why I'm a politically minded writer to this day. Like, I don't think I'm like one of those columnists who has an opinion about everything and can form well-reasoned arguments. Like, that doesn't interest me. What interests me is finding interesting ways of uh, talking about social issues in fiction and navigating and communicating complex ideas through characters um, because it's only through those complex and nuanced explorations of what it is actually like to be a person that we get to understand the world a bit better like I think a lot about writing for teenagers and you know my both books for teenagers have been very explicitly political but they have to also be relevant for teenagers so like the first one's about gentrification and so I'm like okay how do I communicate gentrification to teenagers and the second one is about the trauma of racism so I'm like okay how do I talk about that to teenagers and so my entry point into being politically minded was learning about things through song lyrics through like protest songs and stuff like that I just really like that way of communicating ideas in very accessible ways and I really feel like fiction is perfect for that and what are the three books that you think have shaped your life um the Buddha of Suburbia by Hanif Qureshi when I read that first line my name is Kareem Amir and I'm an Englishman born and bred almost and you know just reading like a refracted version of myself in fiction when I was a teenager was really really important to me and then reading White Teeth was incredibly important because White Teeth is a very characterful novel and it's also a novel that wants to understand family dynamics through basically how how our histories inform our present and there's just something about it that's just so light on its feet that I just really loved it what else god the three books that changed my life weirdly and I can say this because I didn't write most of it I only edited it but The Good Immigrant is a book that changed my life because it's a book that has some of the best writers writing today just putting it all out there and it changed the course of my career and it also changed the publishing industry. So, you know, that is a book that will always be very special. But I suppose I shouldn't just talk about books that I've done because that's kind of arrogant. But, no, <laughs> so, I, think, I think you need to know when to be like, yeah, I did that. And there's no I shame in that. that. Yeah, there's, yeah. No, there's no, you know, embarrassment in that. Um, so I guess now I want to ask you like a bit more about The Good Immigrant. I know we started speaking about it already, but what inspired you to make The Good Immigrant happen? And why did you take that responsibility to collate those stories? I just felt like I was in a position in the industry where I was really sick of doing diversity panels and talking about the same things again and again about why there weren't enough writers of colour being published and how there was always this myth being bandied about that they just didn't sell. And I was always like, prove that to me. Where's your market data research? Just didn't exist. And I'd read Citizen by Claudia Rankin and Between the World and Me by Tana Hussey Coates. And I just sort of longed for a contemporary book about race in the UK. 
and obviously Rennie's book wasn't out yet and Afua Hirsch's book wasn't out yet and Derek Bardwell's book wasn't out yet and I started to write what I thought was going to be My Citizen by Claudia Rankin and I got like 5,000 words into it and I was like I sort of don't have much more to say (laughs) but also at the same time I was a bit like I could do something and get other people to say stuff, you know. Maybe the thing we need is a multitude of voices. And my friend Musa Okwonga, who's an amazing writer, he was sort of talking one day on Twitter about this idea of the good immigrant who, you know, we all start off with the default position of bad immigrant and then we have to prove ourselves to be one of the good ones. And I just replied to him on Twitter. You can still find the tweet. They're still up there. I said, I would totally read a collection of essays called The Good Immigrant. And he was like, you should go and do it. And so I did. Turned out to change my life, you know. When there are books with collections of essays, I always find it can be really tricky to keep the tone similar. But what I found about The Good Immigrant was that every every story was just so unique, but there was something really unifying that together. And do you think that something was you? Well, of course. No, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, no, no. You know what, like, who knows what makes a book work? I think we all just wrote, like, if this is the last thing I ever write, this is the thing I have to say. And we all brought that energy to it. We all brought that it has to happen right now energy. I didn't give anyone too specific a brief. You know, we talked through ideas and, you know, where people came to me with two or three ideas, I'd go, oh, that's quite interesting. Go for that one. I asked people to kind of pitch me the idea that they knew that wouldn't get commissioned by the places they usually wrote for. And also, like, I wasn't trying to make it all inclusive and all representative because I think I would have just failed to kind of go, oh, I need someone from this community and someone from this community. And it also needs to intersect with this community and all the rest of it. I literally asked 40 people and the ones who were in the book are the ones who got back to me and said yes and then handed their essays in on time. There's a world where that essay collection could have been 40 essays long. It could have been 30 essays long but the other thing is like as an editor you kind of have to lean into what your editorial strength is and like I think the thing that surprised a lot of people about the book is that it's really funny and a lot of people are just like they're sort of we're we're joking because the alternative is crying and I'm not the kind of writer who likes being earnest all the time I like being mischievous you know my background is comedy like my first two novels are comedic novels I'm a sitcom writer when I'm not a book writer And so I just brought that tone to my editing. So every now and then I'd push people to make jokes. Like Riz Ahmed is an actor known for playing very intense roles, but I pushed him to make jokes. And because I knew that's what he was capable of, because I know I've hung around with him enough to know how funny he is. So this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it will lead us to somewhere interesting. I was having to explain to my daughter, my six-year-old daughter the other day about racism, because we were talking about why we have a sign in our front window that says Black Lives Matter. And I was explaining it to her and I realized while explaining to her that I had to explain to her what racism was she just did not understand it she was literally like this just concept just doesn't doesn't make any sense to her because you know in her world racism doesn't exist like she is a blank slate she goes to a very diverse school she doesn't have her parents putting certain things in her ear like she has a very mixed group of friends and and all the rest of it and I started to like try to explain to her why some people might be racist. I caught myself saying, well, you know, someone might be racist because, and then I was like, hold on a minute. I'm being intellectually dishonest to my child. She thinks this is a preposterous thing. 
She thinks this is so ridiculous and nonsensical that it makes no sense to her. It's intellectually dishonest of me to try and justify it in any way, to try and justify why someone might be racist. And so when I got on her level about it, I was like, yeah, you're right, it is preposterous. This whole thing is preposterous, that people would be actively mean to other people because of the colour of their skin. You're right, it's a ridiculous thing. And we had a really brilliant conversation about it because I was now talking about it on her level. And just to kind of close the loop on that, I think a lot of those writers got the space to kind of write about how ridiculous it is, how ridiculous this whole thing is, you know? When you think about it at its fundamental core, we're not talking about the insidiousness of the execution of racism. We're talking about the preposterousness of the concept of racism. And I thought that was a really interesting thing that would come up time and time again. And I think that allowed people to make jokes about it. You know, these last few years, especially with the new government in place and the conversations around immigration becoming even more toxic and terrifying what do you think the book industry and the wider media in general can do to sort of tackle this growing xenophobia big question sorry (laughs) yeah you almost have to break it down into the book industry and the media as two separate things i think the media could do less to indulge the binaries of conversations like is racism bad are trans women really women like i think we're at a time where we need proper robust complex complicated conversations about the way we view the world rather than let's pick two polar opposites and find people with the most stringent and awful opinions on both sides to basically have a fight now that's not interesting it's also for not, the clicks right because they're doing it for the clicks that's not, all they're doing yeah it's not journalism you know and it's not intellectually honest and it's not humanitarily honest that's not a word but you know what i'm saying like it doesn't serve humanity well to frame conversation about people's lives in such flippant ways and with the book industry it's not hard just publish more books by brown people publish more books about black and brown people it's not hard and i know that change is happening but the publishing industry is slow so the change is slow i often don't even think it's as simple as just having more books by writers from certain backgrounds is much more about changing who gets to make decisions about what we consider literature what we consider art what we consider publishable and marketable and commercially viable and the only way to do that is just change the socioeconomic makeup of the decision makers of the gatekeepers of the literary agents who decide who to take to publishers and of the publishers who decide what gets to be published and of the booksellers who decide what gets to be on the table at the front of the shop in the bookshops and of the journalists who decide which books to review and who should review them and all the rest of it (laughs) you know it's not hard Mm, it's not conceptually hard it's just hard in practice because people fall into their default positions of well this is just what we've always done so why change anything with that in mind you've obviously known a lot for doing work in terms of removing barriers and to writing and making it accessible for young people especially people from marginalized communities what's your biggest tip to any young person of color who wants to write and make their voice heard um my one tip is to know who you're writing for and why you're writing it in the first place i always ask writers to ask themselves these three questions why this why me why now so always just ask yourself those questions why this why me why now and then do the work 
when I ask people to ask themselves, why me? It's much more about trying to work out what it is that you have to say about this particular thing. What is your unique take? What, uh, what is your intention in writing this piece? What do you want to bring to this conversation? You know, and what is the unique lens that only you can give to this thing? Or like what makes you the expert? You know, we can all write, want to write about different things and you can become an expert, but I'm personally not going to go and write about things that I don't know anything about. And I guess finally, just around the good immigrant, um, what's the one thing you learned about yourself in the process of making this book happen? Um, I learned a lot. Like editing this book challenged a lot of my own opinions about things because these aren't 21 essays that I necessarily agreed with at the time. They all offered me unique, different perspectives on things that I thought I knew a lot about. In some places, they probably challenged some unconscious biases that I might have had or just not even have thought about, which in a way is a bias of its own. You know, we pick and choose what we don't think about. (laughs) And it also taught me to trust my instincts because, you know, when I'd pitched this book to my previous book agent, not the one I currently have, they were like, don't do this. It also taught me that I'm not a public figure. I am best by myself reading and writing and watching stuff. I have no interest in like sitting on a panel or going on news night and debating about issues. I like writing. I like writing fiction. I like writing nonfiction, but I'm not one of those intellectuals, like a rent a gob opinion person. I want to write literature. You know, I want to write stuff that people will be studying. I just don't think that I'm the type of person who people should put on TV or on the radio or on a stage to talk about things. I'm just, I'm not interesting. Like I'm interesting when I'm on the page. And if you could go back and speak to a younger version of yourself, what would you tell young Nikesh? Um, Probably that doing a law degree and then losing five years to being a rapper isn't a waste of time. You know, a lot of the time people would say, don't do that, but you're telling yourself it wasn't a waste of time. And that's really nice. Well, yeah, everything that has happened has brought me to this moment right here, right now, right? You know, things might not have always gone my way, but they've gone the way they have. And so I only have the life I have, you know? Yeah. Yeah, of course. And I know you're working on a new book. Is there anything you can tell us about that? So I've got a new memoir out at the moment called Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family and home. In 2018, I was a columnist for The Observer writing about being a parent and I wrote a lot about losing my mum and also what it's like to raise a mixed race child now in the sort of crazy mess up times that we're in and I've kind of turned that into a longer piece that's kind of a mediation on grief and parenthood and time and also raising children in a racist country and in a patriarchal misogynistic country with the climate about to collapse and how the hell you try and find small pockets of joy in the world i want to say a huge thanks to nikesh for coming on today's show his book brown baby a memoir of race family and home is out this month thank you for listening to broccoli book club next month we're discussing mindfuck cambridge analytica and the plot to break america by christopher wiley Read along with us now, make suggestions, send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voicenote at broccolicontent.com. In the meantime, follow us on social media. Our handle is broccolicontent on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and Goodreads. I've been your host, Diora. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Diora. 
Broccoli Book Club is available on all your favourite podcast apps. This podcast is produced by Jaja Mohammed, executive produced by Tony Phillips, and our sound engineer is Ben Williams. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs>